0: Well, good morning. I've had the privilege of meeting several guests for the first time, and if that's you and I haven't been able to meet you or I have, we welcome you, and we understand that on any given Lord's Day, there there can be people in here that don't believe the same thing we believe, and we're not here to simply force-feed that to you, but we welcome you to look at the text of Scripture and to evaluate it and to really be on the same pursuit we are on, and that is to seek truth. And that's why we've gathered this morning, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him in spirit and in truth. So we welcome you, and we're glad that you're here with us as well. Revelation 16 does not feel like Psalm 23, does it? It doesn't feel like the beauty of creation in Genesis 1, but it is the necessary response to Genesis 3, where the first man and woman chose to disobey God, to assert themselves as gods and try to replace God on his throne. And from that, then issues a curse from the Lord. And it is that curse that we believe, Scripture teaches, we are all under. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have been doing a study in Revelation and there's a lot of terms in Revelation 16 that I will not redefine this morning, Um, but I would encourage you if this is your if you're just parachuting in on this series uh, to find out who the dragon is and who the beast is and the false prophet and to look at some of these terms. And if you if you don't have a Bible or you need a study Bible, just please come talk to myself or Pastor Matt um, after the service. Revelation is intended to be applied. Revelation 1, verse 3, it has its own blessing, but then we are to obey it. And its application, however, is not simply for the future. A lot of the explanation points to the future, but its application is intended to be applied right now. For example, I knew last year that I would be traveling to the Himalayas to trek part of the Manaslu circuit. That future event motivated actions last year. Does that make sense? So I had to make sure that my crushed foot was able to sustain long hikes, so I started to go on longer hikes. I knew that one of the important pieces of equipment was a good high-level pair of hiking boots, so I bought those uh, long enough ago to start breaking them in so they're comfortable. I bought nice socks. We're making sure we have the capacity for filtered water. All that preparation goes into a future reality. That future reality hasn't even happened yet. Lord willing, it will happen in the next several weeks, but we have been planning for that future reality from as soon as we knew about it. Scripture says it is appointed for everybody to die Once, and after that, the judgment. That's the reality. Are you preparing for that now? What preparations? What gear? What decisions? What training? Because if you're not preparing for that reality and all of a sudden it strikes, Romans 1 says, There is no excuse. 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, or outfitted for every good work. We're outfitting for a trip that is coming very soon. We are we are doing strengthening exercises. We are, we are studying maps. We are buying the right gear. How does Revelation outfit us? Because Revelation 16 this morning, rather than just sort of where does this puzzle piece fit on the larger map of prophecy, Revelation is intended to be applied right now. How does it do that to us? Well, it equips us, it outfits us, For the trip ahead by telling us that ultimately God wins. That this seeming struggle, this seeming turmoil, this this seeming victory that Satan likes to brag about is not the reality. The reality is God wins. And we're going to see that, especially as we move towards Revelation 18 and 19 and then 20 and 21. And we will also see that those who have placed their dependence in Jesus Christ... As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they are victors with Him. They are overcomers. That's a, that's a word that Revelation loves to use. So in Christ, we too are then overcomers. But here's the sad part those who reject God, who worship the beast in its image, who receive the mark, they also lose. That's the reality of Revelation 16. So if you see this book as being about determining who exactly the Antichrist is or what exactly the mark of the beast is and what it will look like, I suspect Revelation will not change you very much this morning. It will not outfit you. You simply hold a map to a future reality, but you're not making any preparations for the actual trip. So it's more than just studying the map and the best way to go and how that piece fits here and how we can avoid the congestion downtown by taking this route off to the east. It is about saying, are you ready? And are you ready this morning? Are you ready when these realities hit? Are you ready to meet our Lord and maker? Look at Revelation 15, verse one. Twice now, John has taken us through the whole range of God's judgments, seven visions in the seven seals, seven visions of seven trumpets. And now, under the imagery of seven angels pouring out the contents of seven bowls, John is going to do the same thing. And look at Revelation 15.1. John says this, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. And we talked about that last week, that there were other great signs but there weren't other mega wonderful signs. This one is distinct. I saw this sign, great and amazing. Well, what does he see? Seven angels with seven plagues. And notice the next statement, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. These are the last. And the wrath of God is finished. Finished. So, these bold judgments are not merely the last of a series. They are, the, they are the last judgments of history. So, that's the future reality. Now, go down to chapter 16, verse 1. After, after John communicates the finality of this, he says this in chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels... Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So there's the contents of the bowls. That's what these these bowls are filled with. They're filled with the contents of the wrath of God. Now let's look at the seven bowls. We're actually going to divide them up. We're going to look at the first three bowls and the response of angels and righteous people. And then we're going to look at the the final four bowls and the response of the unrighteous. That's really how chapter 16 divides. So let's look at the first bowl. Look at verse 2. The first three bowls and the response of the righteous. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, we are intended, I believe, John intends for us to think back towards the plagues, the signs and the wonders, specifically the plagues that God put on Egypt. Now, they're not all sort of reverberations out of Exodus. For example, the fourth one is a completely new plague. And I think, I think maybe in part so that we realize these aren't just referencing back to Exodus. These are new and they are the final ones. But there is some great resemblance. And here you have this bowl, these painful sores, harmful and painful sores being poured out on who? Who are the recipients? emptied upon the earth, but who does it affect? Upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, don't miss that. Because do you remember when the pressure of persecution was placed upon the world and people received the mark of the beast so that they could buy and sell. So what seems to be convenient and comfortable and wise and safe at the outset receiving the mark of the beast to avoid persecution and to prosper economically, those pragmatic decisions that seemed very wise at the time all of a sudden turn out to be incredibly painful and devastating. How do we apply that today? That that when this deceptive time comes, that will deceive, even if possible, God's elect, which they will not be deceived. But it's that strong of a delusion. Don't give in. This is the nature of sin. It is deceptive, attractive, alluring, but destructive and deadly. And I think we're supposed to remind, be reminded of the plagues, the plague of the boils in egypt when we lived in africa we had friends that suffered with boils they thought they were getting it from the unclean water the bacteria in the water um, not just from drinking but from bathing and at first and it usually the bacteria gets into either an oil gland or a hair follicle and at first the skin turns red in the area of the infection you initially think it's just going to be something like a pimple and then a tender lump develops, and after about four to seven days, the lump starts turning white as pus and dead skin builds up underneath. And it's extremely painful. Do You know, this, isn't an, this is an appropriate picture as the price for choosing sin. It is an appropriate picture for those who say, No, God for choosing to worship the beast in its image, for not repenting of pride and selfishness, and for those who deny the Lord through convenience and comfort. What's interesting is, like Egypt, some evils afflict those who give themselves over to wickedness that do not affect other people. And again, you're seeing both the power of God, but also the protection of God upon his own people. Well, with that great news, let's look at the second bowl. Verse 3. And that's not good news. Well, it's good news for those of us who are safe in Christ, but it's really not good news. Look at verse three, the second bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every, every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, notice John's careful use of the term like. It doesn't turn into the blood of a dead person, but it is like the blood of a dead person, coagulated, pasty. If you go back to the, the, the trumpet judgments, the first four trumpet judgments only affect a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the fresh water supply, and a third of the lights of heaven. But now, these final judgments, the last of the wrath of God, affects everything. Look up at verse 3 again. It became like the blood of a corpse and... What's the next word? Every living thing died that was in the sea. When I was a younger boy, we loved fast dirt bikes and go-karts, and it seemed like my neighbor Joey always got the best of both. We always had to find that like $57, 1974 model, and he got like the brand new, then brand new was 1986, right? But it was faster, and it was better. And His parents bought him a top-of-the-line go-kart, which was fun for a while, but then we realized they had put, and some some of you guys will remember this, they had put a governor on the engine. Maybe you know what a governor is. And a governor does exactly what it says it does. It governs your speed. And we knew the engine had more in it, but we go, and that's as fast as you could go. It just pulled it way back. And this, parents, is when young boys become mechanics. This is how you learn. Okay, and you do your research because there was no Internet then. So there's none of this Google how to remove a governor. Uh, You had to actually, you know, find out guys that had done this before. And once we did, that thing screamed to dangerous levels. There was no restraint. Right. You know what's happening in these bold judgments? There's almost no restraint now. There's no governor. There is a divine Dangerousness when that angel takes that bowl and pours it out upon the sea, and every no governor, it's not a third now, it's not even a half, it is every living thing dies. No more fish, no more seafood, no more life in the sea, no more nature programs documenting the amazing beauty of those creatures because everything is dead and it stinks. Let's look at the third bowl together. Verse four. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. So you go from the salt water. Now you go to fresh water. And they became. Notice it doesn't say like blood. Did you catch that? They became blood. So similar to the third trumpet, the third bowl affects the rivers and the springs of water. But here there is no limit. They, the rivers, the spring waters became blood. And with the trumpet judgment, the water became bitter. But now they become not just bitter to taste, not just wormwood. They become blood. And that brings us to the first response in the text. Those three bowls issue forth the first response. Look at verse five. John, sitting there, he sees this. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, there's nowhere else in the scripture where the altar actually Speaks. Earlier, the horns of the altar spoke, but now the altar says in affirmation, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, I wonder if up to this point, after looking at the first three bowls, we are starting in our hearts somehow to, to already question whether God is being just or not. You've heard Matt and I both use the term that is so prevalent and helps to describe the evangelicalism today is that we have a therapeutic moral deism. We can't even imagine a God of this character doing this. So an angel comes out and the altar speaks and it says, Just are you, O Holy One. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the source of these judgments, no question, it's God. You brought these judgments. This is not some accident in history. It's not some mistake in human advancement. It's not simply that the people are warring. It is God stepping in to judge. And that judgment is just and holy. Notice that this incredible angelic being holy. What, What words does he use for God? I mean, men throughout history have been tempted to worship angels. And now you have an angel saying, God is what? No, 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 no. God is unique. God is one of a kind. God is perfect in holiness. Notice how the punishment fits the crime. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Remember a couple chapters ago, you had the martyrs underneath, interestingly, the altar, and they were crying out, "Lord, how long? How long until you vindicate us?" And He says, "Rest, wait a little while until your number is full, so there would be other people martyred. The world would come in and great satanic hate and kill God's people. But now, He gives them." blood to drink by pouring out that third bowl and causing all the fresh water to turn to blood. I want you to notice this. Notice what's missing in one of the descriptions. Look at verse 5 again. Of course, the angel in charge of the water says, just are you, O Holy One, and I want you to notice this phrase, and tell me what's missing. So you've got to look at this, or at least listen carefully. O Holy One, who is and who was And what's missing? What are we used to hearing? And who is to come? Why is that missing? He's here. He has arrived. The consummation is now at the doorstep. So the big question is, what will you do when God arrives like that? This isn't fear and intimidation. Not in an unhealthy way. Nobody's trying to manipulate someone's emotions this morning. We're simply looking at the breathed out word of God who says, who is. And he's here. The altar speaks. It agrees. It recognizes who God is. And it proclaims the character of the judgments that they are true and just. And what is humanity's response? We're going to see that in a little bit. It raises its fist and questions the justice of God. But now when true justice falls, they curse him. So they really didn't want justice. Because once justice arrives, they curse him for it. Now let's look at the last four bowls and the response of the unrighteous. And I'm just going to warn you, it doesn't doesn't get any more positive yet. But let's look at this. Look at verse eight, the fourth bowl. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So this plague is new. There's nothing like it. Back in Exodus. And so this bowl is poured out and it seems to give the sun an intensity that it has never had before. And by the way, there is no independent power in the sun. All the civilizations that have worshipped the sun God before it is now God who's saying he is the power. He is the divine Lord, the creator. God is in control. It was allowed. The sun was allowed by God. And I love this. I love, I love Romans. I mean, who's been God's counselor? Let me ask you, did God set up an appointment with you to make sure this was okay? Did he say, hey, what about this? What if, I, what if I create a plague and we make the sun really hot and it burns people? Did he ask your counselor your opinion? No. Because he's God. And their response is this. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give Him glory. And I was trying to put this in just kind of a modern vernacular, and this is what it seems what God is doing. God is giving them hell on earth so that they can turn to Him and avoid hell in eternity. And folks, that is grace. God's wrath is mixed with mercy. The only way to run from God, do you know the answer? The only effective way to run from God is to run to Him in Jesus Christ. He is a refuge. He absorbed the wrath of God. It is the only safe place. Jesus said He is the way, the truth, the life. No one goes unto the Father except through Him. So the only way to run from the wrath of God is to run to Him in Jesus Christ. Look at the fifth bowl. Look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So from the intense heat of the sun, we are now plunged into a darkness. Maybe like the darkness uh, that Pharaoh experienced, it was a darkness that could be felt. And somehow this darkness is accompanied by pain. Pain. The contents of this bowl, interestingly, it's not just nature now, it's political. This bowl is poured out on the throne, on the beast's citadel, and the people that are there congregating around the beast and worshiping its image are plunged into darkness. They gnaw their tongues in anguish. Have you ever done that? I mean, what is gnawing your tongue? In some ways, you're, you're trying to create a pain to distract you from another pain. Some of you have had very serious injuries. And in another description that Jesus gives, when he talks about outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's that, or the gnawing of the tongue. Or the, so you have this emotional distress, the weeping, the physical distress, the gnashing of teeth, the gnawing of their tongues. And what is their response? Do they say, God, help me? No, they don't. They curse him for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. This is incredible. And I want us to understand the the devastating nature of sin. Even intense pain does not awaken them to the realities of their situation of punishment. Look at the sixth bowl. The sixth angel, verse 12, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. This is also going to be political because now... The kings of the earth are going to be provoked and incited to gather for war against this particular place. And its water was dried up. So you had this natural barrier. Even during John's day, Rome had this natural barrier. Israel enjoyed that natural barrier of the river. But now that natural barrier is dried up so that these kings can march freely into this area. And I saw, verse 13, this is a very incredible image. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So really, really quick. So you have, you have Satan there, his beast that performs signs and his false prophet, this religious companion to this secular beast. And what he sees out of the mouth, Of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, I have children that like frogs. But in in John's day and in the days of Egypt, frogs were unclean, carried disease, and they were not to be trusted. Now, you have these frogs, these slimy, incessantly croaking creatures come out. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Now remember, unclean spirits like frogs. Don't think, you know, they're like frogs. There's that word like. It's not exactly it, but that's how John is describing it. And they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. You know, more is said of the sixth bowl than any other bull. John goes into more detail here than before. Now, the river Euphrates was mentioned earlier when the sixth trumpet was blown. Remember, there are three sets of sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets. Now we're in seven bowls. Partial, partial, full. So when the sixth trumpet was blown, the river Euphrates, um, you had four angels come out and they destroyed one-third of mankind. Now it is dried up and mankind now gathers for destruction. To make way for the kings of the east. Now don't miss the warning. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So these are the ones that do not have the white robes, the righteousness that God provides. Verse 16, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon now, I have stood on the literal spot over the valley of Megiddo and military experts say that this I mean if that's where it is going to be is actually one of the perfect theaters for a large scale war among nations. It's an incredible incredible valley spans out surrounded by these higher elevations. And this is, this is familiar end time imagery where God says he's going to gather all the peoples from the earth to a specific spot so they can face judgment. That brings us into the second bowl. And that's all John says about it. He doesn't go into great detail, but look at the seventh bowl. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel. Well, here we are, finally. We're at the last bowl, the last contents of the last bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, what does he say? It is done. Now, Scripture sort of gives Satan the title that he is the prince and the power of the air. Matter of fact, when he attacks Jesus in the wilderness, he actually offers him all the kingdoms of the world and it seems like it's a legitimate offer that he can Give to him. Of course, Satan's condition is you bow down and worship me. The promise is you can inherit the earth like the Father said you would, but you don't have to die for it if you take it from me. And of course, Jesus resisted him. Here you have this final bowl being poured out into the air, formerly Satan's domain. And a loud voice comes from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. Now look what it does. Look in verse 19. The city, the great city, was split into three parts. And the cities, plural, of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says, John leaves us in no doubt that Babylon is to receive the most wholehearted Opposition conceivable from an all powerful and all holy God, the great city stands for civilized man who organizes himself but without God revelation eleven eight says and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, so you have all these former cities that are being mentioned and even Jerusalem where Jesus Christ was crucified all to sort of come together to represent this city of mankind but who refuses God's rule and they will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath you know what's most disturbing about the last three bowls is the obstinance of human rebellion The depravity of sinfulness. The resistance against a good and loving God so that they can go their own way. James Hamilton Jr. states, So God is mercifully judging the world. God is lovingly showing how futile and vain and broken are the false religions and the selfish pursuits and the proud imaginings. It seems that God is going to show the rebels an awesome display of his unconquerable might to offer them a final opportunity to surrender. I think that's, that's the grace in this passage. It's the unmerited favor that God still invites safety to them even though they have been resisting Him. He is designing a hell on earth to prevent them from spending hell in eternity. So how do we respond to this? How do we apply this? That's fascinating. maybe maybe there's folks in here that are still whether is this true or not. How do we apply this right now well heres here's a truth that comes out of the text: God is just, and God's judgments are just. You cannot change God's character. matter of fact, the New Testament says even when You're unfaithful. He is not. It says that he cannot tell a lie. You cannot change God's character, nor can you change the necessity of a holy and righteous God. You cannot change the necessity of Him pouring out wrath upon sin. But you can change the outcome. And here's how. God's justice will either fall on you... Or it will fall on Christ for you. God's justice will either fall square on you, and it will be a fearful day when that happens, or it will fall on Jesus Christ for you. Remember, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God by becoming a sin offering for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Jesus to be sin, a sin offering, not a sinner but a sin offering who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God does not pour wrath out on his own righteousness. So when you stand in Christ, it's it's, it's one of Paul's favorite terms, in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are safe. And when you are in Christ, the wrath has already been poured out. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as the trip approaches, are you ready? What will your destination be when the reality hits? Let me read to you what Jesus said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. This is Matthew chapter 25. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Will God's wrath fall on you Or will it fall on Christ for you? And finally, professing Christian, does this stir affection in your heart for Jesus Christ? How is it that some people can draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him? How is it that people can be externally religious, but still be in great eternal danger. And here's why they've never been truly born again. They've never been born again. They've never tasted the grace of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning, is Jesus more than just the main character in a Bible story? Is Jesus more than just not Confucius or not Muhammad or not Buddha? And another way of asking that is this. Do you love him? Do you love him? Jesus, Well, I mean, I I believe in him. Okay, has that belief altered anything in you by way of affection? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I've commanded you. Did your love, did your affection for Jesus Christ this week cause you to turn from sin? Or when you sinned, it left such a bad taste in your mouth. You said, God, I know you love me. Forgive me. Is there this affection that causes you to live a life of repentance and faith on a daily and hourly basis? Is there any humility, meekness, or love in you? Affection for Christ is evidence that we love God because He first loved us. Is there any love? And if there is no love, if there is no affection, if all you're doing is singing words and and you're critical about something and you're not really praising Him for who He is and what He's done, And it may be that you have never been rescued. Saved people are thankful and praising people. Let's pray.